Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like you to meet Joe. This is what the American press say. The movie Joe must surely rank in impact with Bonnie and Clyde. Time magazine. Money don't mean nothing to them. Motorcycles, marijuana. You got love, you don't need this stuff. How do they fall in love? A hippie pimp. Lone Ranger. Cowboys and Indians. Hop along Cassidy. Not really fags, but close. What he like is to have a little on the side once in a while. I'll drink to that. Do me a favor. Give us all a break. Four stars. Devastatingly funny. New York Daily News. 100 milligrams of Thorazine in the butt does wonders. Get your pants on. It's your ass now, Compton. Easter Orgies. She's anti-fetish. That's Jap food. The best Chinese restaurant in Astoria. A rip snorter. A triumph. Judith Christ, New York Magazine and NBC TV. A very savage film. Very funny. Scores a triumph. The Observer. These kids are getting more than we ever did. Just the credit cards, man. You think I'm chicken? This is my beauty. They're all screwed up, so they're screwing up the culture. We didn't make them feel old-fashioned like the kids make us feel old-fashioned. That's enough. When discussing the films of the 1970s, you cannot avoid the generational shift that characterized many of that decade's finest films. No film epitomizes this shift with as much haunting power as Joe. Released on July 15, 1970, Joe was directed by John G. Avildsen, who would later go on to achieve great international acclaim with movies like Rocky and The Karate Kid. Judging from those career highlights, you might expect Joe to adhere to the same rah-rah underdog themes that he had so deftly mastered. But Joe inverts the notion of the underdog. Joe, played with an irresistible ferocity by Peter Boyle, is a working-class guy who sits at the bar and rails on the changing times, the hippies, people of color, a generation he characterizes as immoral and overly permissive. He finds an attentive ear when he befriends a wealthy advertising executive whose daughter is struggling with drug addiction. Both men form a pact to strike back against a society which is quickly outpacing them. Their journey ends in a devastating and shocking act of violence. It's your ass now, Compton. 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 Kids, they shit on you. They shit on your life. They shit on everything you believe in. They shit on everything. You want to shoot somebody, shoot them. Are you going to kill me too? The film became an underground hit, but not everyone in the audience was in on the joke. Joe was not designed to be an admirable character, but countless citizens who got lost in the culture gap identified all too fondly with his insensitive tirades. Copycat violence occurred in the aftermath of the film's release. A hit album contained Joe's most boisterous ravings. Horrified by the reaction, Boyle backed away from the audience's misinterpretation of his character. Nevertheless, his infectious performance left a lasting impact on society and future films and television series. You can draw a direct line from Joe to All in the Family to Taxi Driver. Critic Tony Macklin. Joe was not the best of us. Joe was the mob. Um, 
and the mob is 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 the, the loudest voices in the room and the people who pounded the table and the people who get the attention um joe's voice but joe, joe's voice and i think that's one of the the film is is in some ways a satire mm-hmm. of 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 the persona of joe but Boyle is such a good actor that he humanizes it. And that's one one reason why films so often are elevated because it's on the script, you have the director who's creative, but the actors humanize the, the experience so that you can't just write this guy off as a caricature. Director of John G. Avildsen, The King of the Underdogs, Derek Wayne Johnson. With Joe... One thing I admire about it is it's so ballsy. I mean, it's 1970. Here's a story about a guy who hates hippies, who hates everything that the 60s brought about. Um, you know, he's a quote-unquote hard hat. He's a guy that, uh, you know, that works at a, at, a, at a factory. And he's not a lovable guy, but I think that's kind of what makes him lovable. He's certainly the anti-hero. And it doesn't feel like a John Avildsen movie at all. And it's also John's first hit. It was the highest grossing independent film of 1970. So one thing I love about it is it's just, it's audacious. And it shows another side of John Avildsen that you didn't see in later years, this raw side about him. And of course, Peter Boyle is absolutely fascinating his performance is up there with marlon brando actually um uh, martin scorsese cites pauline kale in my documentary about how he was like a young brando and uh, that's i think that's the highest compliment one can get he's not imitating brando he just has that pizzazz and uh it's just a fascinating piece of work it in some places joe i feel is a little too much but uh <laughs> I, you know, it's a film that it couldn't it couldn't be made today. I guarantee uh, it just it cannot be made today. However, it reflects so much of the times, then and now. And also, I always like to point this out about Joe. Now, it was an independent movie; it wasn't a studio picture. But in 1969, you have Easy Rider. 1971, you have The French Connection. 1972, you have The Godfather, and so on and so on. 1970 for me. Joe stands out and it's mm-hmm. an underdog film. Uh, it, you know, you may not look at it that way, but it kind of really is. And it's interesting how um, John was kind of doing this stuff. He was right in the mix of that, of that seventies Renaissance. In terms of the lead character, obviously he, he's a character filled with bitterness about the changing times and how he doesn't fit into them. But, um, you know, I think people were, because it's such, like you said, an audacious character and very verbose. And I think he was an, kind of an infectious character for a lot of people. I know I even owned the album of Joe Speaks, which is just of his, <laughs> just of his right. blogs, ramblings. Was, was John troubled by the way the public seemed to take that lead character, to interpret that character? I know that it was supposed to be a parody 
You know, Joe, in other words, Joe is not supposed to be a hero of the times. He's uh, because John, John himself was a very liberal man. And I believe Peter Boyle was as well. So it's a, it's kind of a farce. It's a it's a parody on that type of hard hat. Forty two percent of all liberals are queer. That's a fact. For a little perspective on what the Joe experience was like from the inside, we're pleased to present the following interview with actress Kay Callan. We interviewed Miss Callan last year for our Movie Geek Yearbook series. Joe represented the first feature film for Miss Callan, as she played the quietly suffering wife of the dominating lead character. In this conversation, we discuss many highlights of Miss Callan's career, including her book, how to sell yourself as an actor, and her performances in The Onion Field, Lois and Clark, A Touch of Class, American Gigolo, Knives Out, and especially, of course, Joe. You have authored a series of books to help uh, young artists kind of navigate their way into the industry. And I'm wondering, did you have a guide or a mentor yourself when you when you went off on this journey? No, actually I did not. But when I got to New York, I don't know how I knew to get this, but there was a book. And in those days, when I first went to New York, I had done commercials in Texas where I came from. And so I felt more at home trying to do something like that. And there was a book called the Madison Avenue Handbook that listed all the casting directors, et cetera. So, which I found very helpful. But then the reason I wrote the book was that when I, when my ship came in, when I had some choices, uh, up until that time, nobody really wanted to be my agent. I mean, I had freelance agents for commercials, but for theatrical, which is harder to get into. But when I, when I did the film Joe, I got the New York Times reviews and why it didn't make me a star, but it put me in the system. And so then there were a lot of agents who wanted me, but... I had no idea how you choose. And at that time, I still didn't really choose. I got a manager to avoid making that choice, uh, which was not the best choice, but it was what I could imagine doing at the time. And so then later, much later, when I was out in Los Angeles, my kids were, my son was getting a PhD. My daughters were uh, writing and producing their own music, putting out records, and I thought, well, I have always wanted to know if every agent in the world wanted you, how would you make a decision? And I'm just going to write a book about that. I'm going to interview agents and I'm going to ask all the questions that as an actor, you're really afraid to ask. And so I wrote the first book. And then the first book, which was really for actors, when that came out, then the writers got in touch with me and they're like, where's our book? And then the directors were like, where's our book? And then, uh, Samuel French was distributing for me, and they wanted a book that could be sold all over the world. And that's when I wrote How to Sell Yourself as an Actor. So that's how all that came to be. So when you, uh, I mean, probably having dealt with managers and agencies your entire career, when you finally sat down and grilled them for these books, what were the main questions that you thought, oh, gosh, why didn't I know to ask this when I was starting out? Well, mainly I think when you're starting out, you're afraid to ask an agent or a manager anything. You're just so excited that, you know, that they're talking to you. And so mostly you just say, you know, will you sign me? You know, they, but however, that's an interesting question because 
right after Joe came out, there was a, a casting director, Jay Wolf, who's now uh, passed on, but he had me in for something, and he said, you know, Kay, it doesn't look good that you don't, you're not signed to an agency. I was freelancing at that point, which you could do in New York in those days. He said, you know, it doesn't look good. You should get an agent. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to choose. I mean, really. And he said, well, I have this friend who, um, you know, maybe you can go see him and, and he'll give you some advice. So <laughs> this guy was, uh, he was at William Morris and he was like one of the God agents, which I was too green to even know about. But when I went in and I talked to him, I was like, oh, I want you. And he said, well, no, he said, it's a, it's a group decision here. So, you know, I would have to talk to everyone else here. And then when I went back two weeks later to see if they wanted me, he said, you're too old for us at your place in the universe. You should, Eileen Hecker had just been, and she was probably 40-something, I was like 32, but she had just been nominated for an Academy Award for Butterflies for Free, and he said, you'd have to be as far along as Eileen Hecker. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I really didn't understand how it works, how the whole system works, how the business works, et cetera, et cetera. And so anyway, it was, it was many years later at the time because I, when I worked with the manager, I had already, there was a wonderful agent, Jeff Hunter, who had been working with me freelance. I don't know whether he had asked me to sign or not, but anyway, I had been working with him and ultimately I signed with him. So I really lucked into a wonderful agent and he put me in touch with a wonderful agent out here. But I still wanted to know because as, a, as an a actor who doesn't know much about the business, you, you just know about the agents that your friends have and then the big agencies like you know, WME or ICM Partners or something that wouldn't be interested in you, but there's a lot of smaller boutique agents who have big clients who would have great access, but you don't have any way of knowing about that. So that was what I did, and it was even though, you know, I'd been in the business many years by that time, seven or eight, I think, uh, I it was still, you know, nerve-wracking to call an agent, you know, because maybe they knew me and maybe they didn't and maybe they'd talk to me and maybe they wouldn't. And also, they don't really need any more actors getting in touch with them to say, please be my agent, and my book's just going to open the door for a lot of that. So mm. it was always scary but always interesting. I'm really interested in people's journeys. How did you get from here to there? How did you know to call that person, et cetera? Yeah, Exactly. And you did, you have done throughout your career, uh, quite a lot of TV and, and, and some of the greatest shows in television history. And I want to talk about the big one, uh, Lois and Clark, in a little bit. But what I'm curious about, when you go uh, in and out of different television uh, sets, uh -huh. and you're, you're doing maybe one or two episodes, and it's already you're entering an already established family and you're kind of the outsider. I mean, do you feel like the outsider and how do you overcome that? Are you in the business yourself, Jamie? How do you know to ask that question? That's such a great question. I, I love, I love acting. I'm not in the business outside of doing the show, but I just love the craft of it. See, I don't think anybody else would ever even think to ask or even realize that you are going on to a set with like 50 or 100 people who all know each other, have relationships, you're the new person, and you've got to have enough chutzpah to go in there and act like you belong with them. And that's mm. a big deal. I think so too. It, and with some of the directors that I've spoken to that, do, that go in and out of different TV shows, 
I mean, it's, I think it's equally daunting because they have to, they have to catch up to what the show is, what the spirit of the show is, and then determine, you know, what can I bring to this enterprise that is uniquely my own while still maintaining the spirit of what I'm doing, what, what the show is. Is that right. a similar, and how similar you, process? So if you're, if you're coming in and there's big stars on the show, you know, are they going to even listen to anything that I have to say? Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, that would whole... be really, I think about that a lot. Um, I recently did a film that's coming out Thanksgiving and Ryan Johnson is the director and we were mm. talking about it and he was, when we were talking about it and I was just meeting with him, I didn't know that I was going to be cast or not, but he was just getting ready to, and I talked to him about, about that and I said, and it must be really hard for you too, although he's a very big deal. You know, he, he had four wonderful movies before he directed the Star Wars movie, but imagine being the director and coming into a Star Wars, Star Wars movie. I mean, I can't even imagine. I think, you know, they must say the rosary every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Knives Out looks phenomenal. I can't wait to see that. It's a really fun movie. I think you'll like it. Yeah, I'm sure I will. Okay, so you, you you had some early credits in TV, and I, I'm wondering, how did Joe come into your life? Well, Joe was, when I was in New York, it was like maybe my third year. And it was an agency that sent me out for commercials. But I think in, for Joe, every agent in town sent out, you know, everybody in town, it was an independent film, Every agency in town, I think, sent in every picture of anybody who was at all the right size, age, and color. And so, actually, I I went in one day when I had, I don't know, whatever the call was, 11 or whenever the appointment was, and there were just wall-to-wall people all over the floor. There were so many people there. And I'm like, well, I can't wait all day for this. You know, I've, I had three kids to support by myself, and I had other things to do, and so I, I just left. And I came back at the end of the day when there were just like a couple of people there. And I auditioned for John Avildsen, and we did uh, kind of an improv. And that's how I ended up getting the job. But more interesting than that is that originally Lawrence Tierney was supposed to play the part that, Joe, that Peter Boyle had. Oh. And Lawrence Tierney, I don't know whether you know, he was, I believe he was Dana Andrews' brother. And I guess he'd had a long career and however they got him for this independent film that was paying like 35 cents, I don't know. But they took him to Alexander's department store, which was across from Bloomingdale's in those days, to buy him wardrobe. And on the escalator, he exposed himself. And so they said, oh, my God, we have to get rid of this. So they got rid of him and whoever his wife was supposed to be. Then they cast Peter, and then I was the wife that you know worked out with Peter. That's quite a, an unexpected story. <laughs> well, and the other thing is that I had never done a film. I was very, very green. And I looked at the, at the material, which to me looked like a couple of 60-second commercials. I didn't understand that you have a scene here and a scene there. They cut it through the film, and then you have a presence in the film. And mm. I, I did it, and then I kind of forgot about it. And this was in the days when there were phone booths and you checked in with your service, you know, every hour or so. And I had this message from a guy I never heard of and I called him up and he was the publicist for what had become Joe. And um, I said, he said, do you want, do you want to hear your rave reviews from Judith Christ? And I'm like, well, what for? 
And he said, for Joe, and I'm like, what's that? It had originally been called The Gap uh, because it was a gap, I guess, in those two relationships or else it was between the daughter and the father. I don't know what their original intent was. But anyway, uh, I was like, sure. And he read it to me and he said, you haven't seen the film. I said, no. He said, oh, well, you should come see the film. And so I did. And so it just became this wonderful gift from the gods. You know, the film was on many 10 best lists. And right after it came out, Kent State happened, which mirrored some of the things that happened in the film, which was like when Three Mile, Isle, um, Three Mile Island happened after um, whatever that other film was. You know, it gave it a lot more context. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, it, when I rewatched it recently, I mean, it really accentuates that, ge- that general, that generational gap. I mean, if you mention a gap, there's a generation gap. Yeah. Uh, and what I'm curious about with that film is how people read the film. I think a lot of people might've misinterpreted it at the time and, and kind of heroicized Joe. I even have a record in my LP collection that Joe speaks, which is just a record of all of his racist tirades. <laughs> and uh, and I, I'm wondering, were you aware of, of that, that people might not have gotten the actual message of that film right? I wasn't, but, you know, that's exactly what All in the Family was about. You know, people who were conservative thought – you know, that he was a hero and people that were liberal thought of it the other way, but thought it was funny and thought of Meathead as the hero. You know, you bring it, this is what the audience brings to something. I really didn't uh, realize that at the time, but it totally doesn't surprise me. And how did you feel about, uh, about her, about your character in that film? You know, that was the woman I was raised to be. <laughs> mm. I knew just how to do that. You're supposed you're subservient to your husband. You do what he says. You don't have a mind of your own. That was um, who Mary Lou was. Was everything scripted, or, or you, you said that there was? Except for Peter. Peter's the one who really made the film. It was Peter's first film, but he had. I think he came out of Second City and was a big improviser. And the character of Joe, as he played it, as I understand it, was a character that he had kind of played um, when they did improv. And so he just brought that to it and he added, he added a lot to it. And that's why ultimately, you know, evidently when they, when they cut the first film together, everybody came out with their head in their hands and was like, oh my God, what are we going to do with this? And they took it back in and um, Charles Norris, I think, I can't remember his name, but the editor recut it and he recut it. Because I think John Avelson had cut it before and he was, he was also the cinematographer. So, you know, he was a little gratuitous in his shots. And so when the second editor came in and cut it, then they had this film. And then the film was Joe. And it was the relationship between the hard hat and the advertising man. And that's what the film became. It was supposed to, the emphasis was supposed to be on the father-daughter relationship. Mm. And what, what kind of an acting partner was Peter Boyle for you? Oh, he was great. He was just the best. He was a really, I really... I really loved Peter. I didn't know him before that. Um, we saw, we'd see each other on the street in New York from time to time after that. And I never did get to see him out here when he was doing Raymond and having that great success, which I was very happy for him. But, you know, he had a lovely career all along. And, and your, um, you, you mentioned that when you did, Joe, your first film, that you felt very green. Was there a film where you 
felt like you found your groove and you're, you're like, okay, I get this process now. I'm kind of, I'm more comfortable and settled into this. Oh, I don't think I felt green at the time. I know now how green I was just <laughs> period when I was in New York. Yeah. Thank goodness. I thought I knew a lot more than I did. If I had had any consciousness of where I was on the, on the food chart, you know, to where everything was, you know, I didn't get to New York till I was 32. I had, I was from Texas. I had taught school. I had married. I divorced. And when I got divorced, it was like, well, I'm not going to stay in Norman, Oklahoma, where I was living at that point for my husband to get an advanced degree. And it's like, I don't want to go back to Dallas. I'm just going to go do what I was going to go do in the first place. So I took the kids and went to New York and was extremely lucky. But because you're young and stupid, it doesn't occur to you that anything can go wrong. So but I thought, because I had done all these commercials, and I had also, when I was teaching, I had directed and produced plays and stuff, so I felt like I was a lot further along the line than I was. And when I went to New York, I, I never felt, you know, like I don't know as much as the next person. I actually didn't even know half as much as the next person. It's only in retrospect that I know how very green I was. I was after I was out here a few years, way into my career, I ran into a, a casting director from Ted Bates who had cast me in commercials. I was at the theater one night, and Rob came up and she said, "Hi, Kay, it's Raleigh Bester." And I'm like, "Oh, I'm so happy to see you. Thank you for saying hello." She said, "You know, I knew you when you weren't even very good." <laughs> <laughs> and I just laughed because it was hilarious and it was true. You know, I look back on stuff from that time it's like or you look back on anybody's stuff from when they were young you know they were just becoming they you know you have to spend a certain amount of time and mostly for me at 32 in New York I was I was in competition with other 32 year olds who had been there for 10 years you know but I luckily didn't really understand my shortcomings or otherwise I'm sure I would have run back home well, uh, I, I want to ask you about a couple of these other films, and I'll, I'll name some titles. If you could just tell me the most kind of vivid memories that come to mind in association with these titles. Okay. Uh, a, a Touch of Class. Oh, that was so great. I love, you know, that's when I I went to Spain. I, my, my fantasy had been, oh, I'm going to travel. I'm going to go all these places. This is the only fabulous place I ever went in a job. But I got to go to Spain. And I became friends with Glenda Jackson, who at the time was already a big star. But again, back to my greenness, I really didn't know that. And George Seal was a big star. I didn't know because I hadn't been in New York that long, you know, that he'd been on Broadway in, in Virginia Woolf and that he was a big star and she was a big star. My manager at the time told me before I left that I should go see Glenda. Uh, Women in Love was playing, and I should see that before I left, but it didn't mean anything to me. So I was able to be a regular person with her. Hmm. But then when I got back home, because I had met her and we had worked together, I, I saw her Elizabeth series that was on PBS, which was just breathtaking. And I remember writing her saying, oh, my God, I'm so happy that I didn't see that beforehand or I would never have been able to treat you like a regular person. And anyway, Glenda and I are still friends to this day. I saw her last year in New York when she did Lear and then the year before that when she did Three Tall Women. What an incredibly powerful actress she is. Oh, wow. and, and person. You know, she's just... She's so strong, and she, well, you know, she was a member of parliament for all those years. She's the most amazing person to talk to on, on a great variety of subjects. Uh, and you did, uh, 
you did a part in the Onion Field, uh, Harold Becker's film, didn't you? Yes, I did. I played James Wood's mother. And James and I actually, I knew from New York, we had done a commercial together, actually right after Joe came out. And I had all these wonderful reviews. And, um, and we were in, I don't know, Baltimore or someplace. I'm doing this regional commercial. And I had to play this woman who uh, had forgotten to make a bank deposit and had parachuted out of a plane uh, to get there. And so I had this parachute on, and then they would pick me up, you know, from uh, by the parachute and hold me high in the air so that they could drop me down so that it was so, so I just landed, you know. I remember turning to James and brushing myself off and saying, you know, I was just in a film. <laughs> they don't know that, or they wouldn't throw me in the street like It's just a joke, of course. But anyway, so I did a, I did a couple of things with uh, James Woods. I can't remember the other one, but I know it was also Hal Becker. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, I think they worked together again in The Boost. Uh, I'm not sure what other film they did together. That may have been it. I remember I just played a um, motel operator or something like that. But I just remember that it was nice to see Jimmy and Jim. Yeah. yeah. And uh, American Gigolo, uh, we've had uh, Mr. Schrader on our show several times. And this movie was, uh, was uh, it's one of those quintessential movies of that time period. Uh, it, it, so what, what was your experience like on the set of that? Well, of course, all my scenes were with Richard, which was lovely. And I, I just had a wonderful time. And I remember that Schrader treated me as, as well above my pay station, I thought. You know, he was so gracious to me. I have fond memories of him uh, and of Richard. That was a very nice experience. Do you have any problems watching yourself? Like if you when you went to the theater and you saw yourself with American Gigolo or any of these films, are you self-conscious at all about it or are you okay with it? No, I'm, I don't understand all these actors. Are they lying who say, Oh, I never watched myself. I watch <laughs> myself to see if I did well, you know, I like to see myself before other people see it because if I did well, I'll say, Oh yeah, you should see that. And otherwise I just won't even mention it. You know, I like, I like to look and see how it happens. And it always is kind of another worldly experience. It's, Hard for me to really associate that that is me, but I am there, you know, grading myself on what I did or how I looked or whatever. Well, I watched you in something just last night, and I, I liked it very much. It was something I hadn't seen before, uh, called Midnight Clear. Oh yes, that was a that was a wonderful experience. We had we made that first as a half hour film for Dallas to raise money for the film, and then. Uh, we went back and he had expanded it and we did the whole thing. Thank you very much. That was, that was a good experience. I liked it very much. Yeah. And uh, I guess w when we talk about your career, one of the, the big uh, projects that you're best known for is Lois and Clark, where you did something like 87 episodes. Uh, oh no, I didn't do that many. I think Lois and Clark did that many. I did. Let's see. My my contract was seven out of thirteen, and we did four years. I don't think I did eighty-seven. Did I? It seems like I did more on um, that series I did for Tyler Perry. Um, what was that? Called? Meet the Browns. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I did. But anyway, yes, it was a wonderful experience. It was nice to have a regular job, and more when people come up to me and they're like, "Oh, I know you. Oh, but what do I know you from?" 
I've learned now to just say, you know, here's my real name. Look it up on IMDb because I'm going to say this and you're going to say no, and then I'm going to say that and you're going to say no, and pretty soon I'm going to feel like I never worked and you're going to be embarrassed. But if I'm going to say anything, I usually say Lois and Clark because, you know, that gave me more visibility than anything else. Well, and it's odd because I think as an actor, you can do a ton of uh, noteworthy movies but if you are on a hit TV series, there's a different level of familiarity that people have with you where they almost feel more comfortable with, with you, like you're part of their family or inner group somehow. Well, I think what happens is because you're in somebody's living room. For instance, when I first moved out here, the first show I worked on was One Day at a Time. And right next door was um, All in the Family, which was such an iconic show and had been on for several years. And I remember that we were having a read around the table and Peter and uh, um, Carol came in to pick up something off the table. And it was all I could do to keep myself from saying, hi, how are you? Because I felt like I knew him. Then ultimately I worked on that show. But, but I mean, I just think when somebody's in your living room and you see them over and over, you just feel like, you know, in the same way that they say that when you see a film, that your, your, your consciousness experiences it as though it's the truth. You know, mm. so if it's violence and whatever your body's gone through, all those things, whatever. And so I think when you see somebody in your living room all that time, you really think they were in your living room on some level. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, is there a film in your resume that you feel is undervalued that you, you wish more people had seen? Oh, I don't think so. Not that I can think of. I, I feel like anything I anything I was in got about the amount the amount of worthy reception it should get. And you have you have Knives Out that that will be released uh, this this upcoming season. Yeah, uh, thanks. Day before Thanksgiving. Yeah, and I cannot wait to see that. Do, uh, is there anything else in the pipeline for you? Uh, well, not at the moment that I know about, but that's what keeps all of us in the business is, you know, the phone could ring at any minute. And I mean, that's how Knives Out happened. Actually, I was on vacation with my daughter. We had just left Los Angeles. We had gotten into New York. We changed planes. We got to Rome. And there, you know, you have Internet for the first time. And there's an email from this person I never heard of saying, Hi, I am so-and-so. I'm the producer for Ryan Johnson, and I really didn't know who he was then. And uh, for your consideration, you know, confidential. And it was a script, and I was like, I emailed back right then, and I said, well, I'm in Rome. I'm on my way to Palermo. I'll read it, you know, when I get to Palermo. And actually, the first thing he sent me was like, were really revisions and it was just a few pages. So I remember saying to my daughter, you know, this had happened. I said, but look, it's just probably a short film or something. I don't know what it is. And I kind of forgot about it. And so then I got to uh, Palermo and we had a whole day of stuff. So it was like 930 at night and I tried to read it, but by this time I'd been up 24 hours and I read, you know, a few pages of it and then I just went to sleep. And then what I thought was morning, but was really only an hour later, I got either a call or a text, I'm not sure, from the one of the casting people saying, blah, 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 you know, and she's a casting director that I know and a uh, casting assistant. And she said, you know, uh, Ryan, 
Brian Johnson wants to FaceTime with you tomorrow about this. And I'm like, well, I haven't read very much of it, but I only had one line. And she said, well, it's, you'll see, you know, keep going. And so anyway, it was this amazing, wonderful gift from the gods. You know, actually, as it turns out, they brought me home early from my vacation because they wanted to have, you know, hair and makeup tests because they had to do a lot of um, age, age work on me and so forth. But, you know, I was, I was off, you know, in Europe. And then, oh, boy, look at this wonderful job. Actually, all actors say that all you have to do to get a job is book a, book a non-refundable airline ticket. <laughs> but I actually had three because I had that one. And then when we got back, I was, I was supposed to go the next week to a high school reunion. And then I had already bought a ticket to go to my son's for Thanksgiving. And so now I know the secret thing to do is to get three non-refundable airline tickets to get another job. <laughs> <laughs> Don't it make you want to go to war once more? Hey, Joe, why the devil did we go to war before? What the hell for? I saw a fellow selling junk to children. He gets nervous every time I pass. Cause he knows that if I catch him, I'm gonna bust his head and kick his fat Hey Joe, don't it make you wanna go to war once more? Hey Joe, why the devil did we go to war before? What the hell for? Three nights a week I work until seven Gotta make me some overtime when you got a wife and some children, how in the hell can you save a goddamn dime? <laughs> hey Joe, don't it make you wanna go to war once more? Hey Joe, why the devil did we go to war before? What the hell for? People demonstrate against my country. Looking for an easy buck But if they want my contribution Well, they can go take a flying f- Hey, Joe 